Hey. 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 <laughs> Good. Hey, so yeah, this is um this is a podcast. This is gonna be our Washington Military Department, Washington National Guard podcast, hosted by yours truly, Jason Christ with the Public Affairs Office, and Joe C. Mandel, also with yes. the Public Affairs yes. Office, who is the state public affairs officer. Yes, yes. And um, we would like this to be a fun conversational podcast that we will occasionally invite people and talk about big news stories that are happening, happening around the guard, um, happening around the department, and also to talk about the news, other news that's uh, that's happened that's a little bit less newsworthy, but more good to mention, and also to, yeah bring in invited guests and just talk about uh, various things that happen. Um, so today, later on in the show, we will um, talk to a gentleman named Peter Grilly, and he is a volunteer with the Washington National Guard State Historical Society, better known as the guys who work in the museum. The guys that work the guys in the, that at keep, the museum and building too. Keep our history, keep our history alive, and keep our story going. He has a really, really cool story about how he came across some artifacts of Brigadier General Maurice Thompson, who is a um, former tag who served for three different terms as the adjutant general. And he uh, served as the, the longest tenured or is that the word yes, for it? Yes, yes. He served the longest as um, the adjutant was, general. Until he was tagged for 27 years. 27. Yeah, I looked it up uh, earlier. Three different times <laughs> in three different areas. In three different eras, uh, World War One and World War Two. That's, yeah, that's crazy. So he, he brought, the, uh, brought the National Guard through two world wars. And yeah, he's a pretty prominent guy in our history. In our in our state's history, so he he came across some some interesting items that he's going to talk all about. So that's coming up later. But first, we're going to talk about uh, our state partnership program. And uh, Joe, would you explain to us a little bit about what the state partnership program is? Uh, so the state partnership program is a it's a national level program that every national guard state and territory has. It partners us up with countries. Uh, just hit its 25th year of existence. Um, uh, 17 for us. We've been partners with Thailand for 17 years now. Uh, new with Malaysia, just yeah, over a just year. Just last year. Um, but it's it's a great program, and it's it's a little bit of military to military, civilian to civilian, uh, subject matter expert exchanges, and learning best practices. Um, it's a real unique thing to the national. Best Guard. practices of of what? Uh, so, um, it can be anything. So recently, we had a, uh, a group from the armed forces, the Royal Thai Armed Forces, I should say, uh, come over to talk with our Air National Guard leadership. And they talked to a number of different topics. Um, they talked about cyber, you know, what, what we're doing in cyber and how they're using cyber um, in, in a similar role. They talked about Air Guard, you know, um, refueling missions. So they did a, a refueling flight. They talked about the warfight mission they have. Uh, we talked to them about 
uh, our Western air defense sector and how they guard the skies 24-7. There was a number of different topics that were brought up, um, but some of the big things that were talked about was just building those, those relationships and those partnerships. Uh, one of the unique things about SPP is you kind of see the same people over and over and over again. Uh, Jason, you and I have both been to Thailand a number of times. I think I've been there six times. You've been to Thailand three? Three, two with SPP and one with uh, Cobra Gold. Yeah. Yep. So uh, you, you see the, the same people every time you go on an SPP mission. It's always the same individuals because you build those relationships with them. And, and what's the purpose of this, this partnership program? Not just to build relationships, but... It's I mean, a, they it, exchange, you know, best practices about like port security or yep. cybersecurity, and they just see see what the other nation and country is doing, mm-hmm. and we can evaluate on how they can improve, and then they vice versa, yep. they can evaluate us on how we can improve and mm-hmm. other things to consider. Yeah, and uh, one of the biggest things though is strengthening allies, and that's uh, the easiest way to say it. Yeah. Um, you know, you can't you can't fight wars alone. You can't save lives alone after a disaster. We all know that. We always we always have to have partners in everything we do. SVP is a way to create new partnerships and strengthen them throughout time. Uh, Washington and Thailand have had a formal partnership for over a hundred plus years. Um, as two countries, and mm-hmm. we've we've been lucky to have Thailand as you a mean partner. The, the U.S. and yeah, 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 tar- yeah. <laughs> sorry, uh, the U.S. and Thailand have had right. a partnership for over 100 years. We've we've been very fortunate, though, in the last 17 years to have that partnership with Thailand. Um, we share those best practices. You know, we've got units that are. Um, in a way, they're a partner unit. Uh, our 81st Brigade earlier this year had the 12th Infantry Regiment from the Royal Thai Army out here, um, and they did cross training uh, and cross um, exchanges. You know about what best practices are, equipment, and you know what they can learn from each other and that kind of thing. So, mm-hmm. um, what, what have you like? What are some of the things that you remember most about Thailand? Oh, food is always number one. Uh, The food is absolutely delicious. Yeah. Um, The climate is so different than Washington. It's it's a phenomenal place, and the people are so friendly anytime you go there. Uh, It's it's just a but it's it's the people you work with, and one of the things that always strikes me as you could walk into a restaurant one day. And you go back to that restaurant the next day, they're gonna know exactly what you ordered. You could be the thousandth person they saw that day, but they remember you by face. And you just keep doing that. And then you mm-hmm. can go back a year later, and it's the same exact kind of treatment. They remember everything about what was taught to them or what was shown or who they met. Um, and it's it's phenomenal, you know, just the people and how they are and who they are. They're super friendly. And it, that's uh, that's something I always remember. How about you? I mean, having gone a number of times. Oh yeah, the food is is always amazing. And and it, what you said about the people—they're just so friendly and helpful. So, mm-hmm. um, and, and uh, the same thing actually goes with the Malaysians. Uh, I just recently went there last year with the General Doherty and some other senior leaders to sign the official document solidifying us as our state partners our second state partner so we went to <clears throat> we went to um, Kuala Lumpur and we went to their ministry I'm not sure what it's called I think it's a ministry of defense or um, and then we uh, we signed signed the paperwork there and uh, had a had a big press press conference there yeah and 
one of the things that we were we were discussing prior was we've gone on different engagements too. It's not just military to military. Um, we've both gone in a, in a civilian capacity in a way um, and did port security and assisted oh, them yeah, with yeah. public affairs after a disaster at a port. Um, yeah, like like like, mm-hmm. how would you communicate with your public yep. if this happened at your port? Yeah, and there. that's and that's exactly you yeah. know you know, how they go through that ICS process after a disaster, how they, you know, get first responders to come in and how they tell that story. Mm. And uh, it's it's always, you know, fascinating because you can learn something there. You know, they're, they're professionals just like us. They go through years of education to get to those jobs. And you can learn something every time you go there, even if you mm. don't mean to be learning something when you go there. So what, what are some of the... the, the future goals of this state partnership program I mean um, so so what uh, what was discussed during the meetings um, was that you know current Colonel Welsh is the one uh, four commander he was the previous Joint Chief of Staff he was really kind of our boss mm-hmm. um, and uh, he's he's always had an interest in SPP and, and how the program moves forward and uh, he's seeing now the strategic goals of the Air National Guard with SPP are, are starting to line up where you have like-minded units and like-missioned units working together and we're seeing that on the Army Guard side as well with the 81st uh, Striker Brigade they're moving into more joint partnerships where it's like you work with a unit here you start building those bonds with them you work with a unit there in Thailand and you build those bonds even further and Ultimately, you know, and, and General Dockerty sitting down and talking about it, he he wants to get to a point where we're using our refuelers to go to Thailand instead of that two thousand mm-hmm. dollar bill it takes to get from Washington to Thailand per person. Right now, you can put you know hundred guardsmen on a refueler and you can take it across the Pacific, do some refueling missions, land in in Bangkok, and you can literally start working that next day. You That's, don't have to you don't have to pay a lot. The the yeah. The lodging is cheap, and, and we both know about the lodging. That's something that uh, you'd have to see it to believe it. 100 bucks there is like a $500 hotel here. Um, but the, the air travel is what's the most expensive, yeah, yeah. like we were talking about. And uh, that's that's what he wants to get to. That is would be really cool. Washington. Really cool. Uh, yeah. and, and he said it best, you know, in a, with a quote that he said was, he wants to see a day where Washington Air National Guard uh, refuelers are refueling Royal Thai Air Force jets. He's like, we want to see that day someday, mm-hmm. and I think that would be the ultimate goal is to get to that point. Nice. All right, coming up after the after the break, we're gonna we're gonna talk about a recent change of command that happened at uh, Yakima Training Center. Washington is earthquake country. Join us for the world's largest earthquake and tsunami drill, the Great Washington Shakeout, October 18th. Learn survival and preparedness tips at shakeout.org slash Washington. That's shakeout.org slash Washington. Drop, cover, and hold on. Be sure to follow us on social media. Stay up to date on all the cool events, stories, photos, and videos happening around the Washington National Guard. If you have a question, have a comment, or just want to say hi, send us a DM, PM, tweet at us, whatever, and we'll answer you. We also love to share and collaborate. Send us the photos or videos you take at Drill or AT, and we'll tag you. Are you an active Instagrammer? Well, you might be a perfect candidate to take over our account. Send us a message, and we'll set something up. To find us, do a search for WA National Guard. That's WA National Guard, and look for the blue check mark. So, where did you go over the weekend, Joe? Uh, so I went over to Yakima uh, to uh, the training center for uh, the 303rd 
Cavalry Regiment, so 1st Squadron, 303 Cavalry Regiment, change of command uh, between Lieutenant Colonel Chris Blanco and Lieutenant Colonel Tim Osmer. The 1st Squadron is a unique unit now. It it was uh, always been in the 81st Brigade for many years. When the brigade shifted from uh, armor to strikers, uh, 303rd kind of lost a spot. uh, They didn't have a home. And... They, uh, they folded the flag for a short time period, brought it back um, in the 96th Troop Command, but as a split unit assigned with the 41st Infantry um, Brigade Combat Team out of the Oregon National Guard. So it has a very unique structure in a way so you've got... The, they're like physically located in Washington, but their higher headquarters it, is in Oregon. Right? Yes, so uh, the brigade itself is actually... The brigade headquarters itself is actually located in Vancouver, Washington, so right there on the border with two cavalry troops here in Washington, two cavalry troops in Oregon, and the uh, um, headquarters in Vancouver. And it's it's an extremely unique uh, unit in the regards that it's in two states, and it kind of came from nothing um, in 2016. It, uh, it just kind of came back. and. Colonel Blanco, during some of his remarks as the outgoing commander, he said, you know, we were uh, a mixed bag unit um, that was just about 80% strength and 70% MOSQ'd. Uh, for those of them that don't know what MOSQ is, that's military occupation specialty. Um, that's actually being qualified to do your job in the military. Um, they didn't know what was going to happen. They had truck drivers and chem specialists and, and people that have, were mechanics and units that now they're cavalrymen and you don't really know what's going to happen. And uh, everybody embraced it. Um, they really got behind the mission and they identified that this is a great unit because of great leadership. And that's, that's the bigger piece in this and that's the thing that we're highlighting here is uh, that unit was was fortunate with great leadership in Chris Blanco taking over, and are, are fortunate with Tim Osmer as another great leader coming in. Um, both are fantastic officers. We've known them for a while, Jason. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, both have been phenomenal to work with, as you know. Uh, they always push their folks to, to be great. as To be best. To be the best, to be great. And uh, that, uh, that's a tribute to both you know outgoing and ingoing commander, but it was a very special moment to watch. Um, you know, a guy that you've seen grow up as a captain in this organization. Uh, he was originally an enlisted member, Lieutenant Colonel Osmer. He was a staff sergeant before he switched over to become an officer. And, and now he's sitting in war college, you know, doing it online while leading a cavalry troop. So very fascinating. Uh, he's got a very fascinating story. He's another one of those guys that uh, very smart individual, uh, good, good background, and always pushes his guys to be the best, as you know. All right. When we come back, we're going to talk to Peter Grilly and his story on acquiring the artifacts from the Maurice Thompson estate. The Great Washington Shakeout, a statewide earthquake drill on October 18th. Participants will learn survival and preparedness tips and how to get two weeks ready. Register at shakeout.org Washington. Drop, cover, and hold on. And welcome back. Today we have on the show Peter Grilly, who is a volunteer with the Washington National Guard State Historical Society. They are the guys that uh, run the museum that's on Camp Murray, Building 2. Stop by if you want to If you want to see our history. Uh, they keep it alive. They keep it going. They um, they do a lot of good things to, to keep our story alive uh, in, the, in the National Guard. So um, 
I am also here with Sarah, Sarah Morris. Sarah Morris, who is our <laughs> public affairs specialist with the Washington National Guard, and uh, yeah, here to participate. So, Peter, uh, tell us a little bit about who Brigadier General Maurice Thompson was and his significance in our state's history. So, Brigadier General Thompson um, was the son of a Georgia militiaman that served during the Civil War, and he volunteered to join the Washington National Guard in 1898 and preparing to deploy overseas for the Philippine insurrection. He actually ended up being too lightweight. He wasn't heavy enough, and so they didn't allow him to to join, to be federalized. So he stayed home. When the uh, Washington Guard got back from the Philippines in 1899, he joined Company B of the 2nd Regiment, Washington National Guard, in Seattle, and worked his way up from private to first sergeant, and then got a commission as a first lieutenant in 1901 with Company B. Served a couple of years as the lieutenant, then uh, was promoted to captain in 1905 with Company B. So he became the company commander with the same company that had been serving with. He continued to do that and then eventually um, was appointed a special duty to serve in the adjutant general's office. And because of his his ability to do things, he became a major in um, 1905 and became the commander for the second regiment and of the Washington National Guard. And so um, he continued to do great things for the for the regiment, continued to de- develop the, Was- the National Guard, and then um, was selected as the adjutant general in uh, 1914. So he became the, the, the leader of the entire National Guard. He, his first trip, his first tour as an, as the adjutant general lasted until 1918. World War I rolled around. Most of the Washington National Guard was mobilized for World War I, so he didn't have much of a job to do related to the state. So he then joined, uh, he was federalized as well and did some work for the, the active duty component stateside during World War I. Okay, so he didn't deploy overseas with them, but he... He did uh, not deploy overseas. Okay. Did the active duty recognize him as a brigadier general? He was reduced in rank to, to major, which was his permanent rank, um, because the adjutant general position was a, a, a brigadier general position. Um, so then the person that he replaced uh, in 1919 decided that he was going to do something else and didn't want to be adjutant general anymore. And so Maurice Thompson took over in December of 1919 as the acting adjutant general. On January 1st, 1920, he was officially the adjutant general again. So he had the full-time role once more as the brigadier general. He served then from 1920 all the way up until 1941. And in 1940, the Washington National Guard was again mobilized for World War II this time. And so 1941, his role as Adjutant General was pretty much done because there was no National Guard really left in the state. And so he was then took over managing the selective service process for the state of Washington. The selective service is the draft. So he was responsible for managing the entire draft system for Washington State during World War II. World War II ended in 1945. He was again 
um, requested to become the adjutant general, knowing that the National Guard would be uh, reconstituted in 1947. And so based on his experience leading the National Guard for all the years prior, he was the best man for that job in 1945 and took over as the adjutant general and did that for the two years until the National Guard was reconstituted in 1947, at which time he finally went into full retirement. What does that mean to be reconstituted? Between 1945 and 1947, there was no National Guard in the state of Washington. There was still a state guard, which those guys are all volunteer, they didn't get paid. But in 1947, Congress finally allowed, provided money so that the National Guard itself could have, could could reform. Mm. And so they did all the, the recruiting and got all the new equipment and everything they needed to do so that the National Guard could form up again in 1947. Tell us a little bit about how his, this, um, what you found online. And then and go into a little bit about the, the, the story that you, that you found his, uh, some of his artifacts. It started um, probably six, seven years ago. I was just doing searches for National Guard artifacts and ran across somebody selling a tunic that he claimed was Maurice Thompson's. And he had no idea who Maurice Thompson was, but I did. Yeah. And so I started talking to him and I was like, okay, what can you do to show me that it really was? And he sent me a picture of the label that's inside the tunic that says Maurice Thompson from a Seattle tailor, 1923. And so I knew that it was the real thing like that and I couldn't ship him enough money fast (laughs) enough to get the tunic. (laughs) And so the tunic sat in my collection for a long time because I really had nothing else to go with it. And unfortunately the tunic was stripped of all of its um, decorations and everything. It was just just a straight coat. So it was sitting there and then last year I was doing uh, one of my searches again and came across something that was attributed to Maurice Thompson and it was Four Swords and the seller was in Hawaii. So I got a hold of the seller real fast and tried to ask him some questions and figure out how I can authenticate this stuff and know, have some idea of what he's doing, where, what other things might be available, because I really had no idea. And it turned out that the Four Swords came out of a Thompson estate and the person the, the person's estate was somebody named Kathy Thompson. And right now we don't know the connection between Kathy and Maurice, but we do know that there is a connection because her house was full of Tom, uh, Thompson artifacts, and not just Maurice Thompson, but also stuff related to his father and his father's brother and family members prior to that. So there was a whole slew of artifacts that were in there. And so I, as soon as I saw the swords come up and I talked to the guy and I said, look, I'm going to be getting these swords one way or the other. So can you take them down off the auction site? And then, you know, we'll work through the details. I talked to my wife and I was like, all right, how much are you going to let me spend? (laughs) So She said, what? She's like, okay, what'd you find now? And so... I kind of knew where I was going to go with that and where my limit would be. And at the same time, I'm talking to museum folks and I sent an email and I said, urgent, you know, I need some feedback here. Here was an opportunity to own swords that that were owned by Maurice Thompson. 
are we interested and how much are we willing and, to spend? And who did you talk to directly? I talked to Rick and Emery directly. Yeah. And then there was also email blasts that were going across the entire board of directors because, of course, spending money requires the right. consensus of the board to be able to do so. Right. Let's go back. Go back to the uh, the um, the searching searching uh, on the auction site. Um, mm-hmm. How often do you do that? Daily. Do you? <laughs> yeah. What do you What do you search for? I I search for stuff related to Maurice Thompson. I search for stuff related to the Washington National Guard. Yeah. I, my main historical and collecting interest is the 161st Infantry. Yeah. Um, so I I do looking for stuff for that as well. Of course, the 161st Infantry traces its lineage back to 1855s, and so the second regiment that Maurice Thompson was in was uh, a predecessor of the 161st Infantry. So mm-hmm. it all tied all back together again, and it was just an amazing, amazing find for it all. So uh, what happened uh, from when you, when you what, what did the guy say when you when you talked to him about uh, taking down the the, the 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 swords? I was really surprised. He was very amicable to doing it fairly quickly. I, I think I, I said the right things to him. I didn't tell him I was on the board of directors. I just told him I was interested in the sword, and so um, I, I think I must have said the right things to him that he knew that I was interested. He, I think. First off, I knew who Maurice Thompson was, and he was surprised that anybody would know who he was. And so he'd already done his research. I mean, so did he know the historical significance of the swords? He knew that Maurice Thompson was an adjutant general for the state of Washington, but he didn't have a full understanding of who Maurice Thompson was. And so in those conversations with him, I was able to give him some additional information and that I think established some rapport with him and so he understood that I was serious about acquiring these things and making sure that they were put in a position of honor. Mm-hmm. So what are you what are you doing now with the swords and the the tunic and the the rest of the display? The tunic, I have a a photo of Maurice Thompson from the 1930s, and so it has all of his different awards and his collar insignia and everything and so I've taken um, I've purchased old insignia and restored his uniform, so it looks exactly like it was in that photo. Mm-hmm. The uh, and then that piece, as well as the swords, are going to go into a display case, and that display case will tell Maurice Thompson's story. So we're going to have some nice signs up there um, that is going to tell the different aspects of his story and so forth. Interestingly, after we had the swords for about three months and I was continuing to do my searches, I had another hit from Maurice Thompson, and it was the different collar insignia that was his. And so we have um, some 1903 1910 era collar insignia that he actually wore as well as some service ribbons and so forth and so those items are going to end up in that display case as well. Uh, can you tell us more about the sword specifically like what sets them apart and and uh, why they were important to the collection? Mm-hmm. Sure. So we acquired four swords. Two of those are 1860 staff swords. We don't have any history on them. There's no names to them or anything like that but we can make the assumption that they were were associated with Maurice Thompson just because of the timing and so forth. Those swords would have been used even around 1900, 1901. And with his father and his 
brother, his father, or his uh, his uncle, having also served, those swords certainly have some some association to Maurice Thompson. Two of the swords that we acquired are actually named to Maurice Thompson. One of them is a standard uh, 1903-1905 officer saber, and on the back strap it says Major Maurice Thompson. So we know that it was actually his, and that that sword dates 1905-1914, somewhere around there. Um, We have a photo of Maurice Thompson with his regimental staff, all his company commanders and his lieutenants, and he's got that sword in his lap. So we know that 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 sword is his. The more significant piece is the sword that is named to Brigadier General Maurice Thompson. That sword has an inscription on the back strap that does say Brigadier General Maurice Thompson from the men, from his men of Company B, 2nd Regiment, Washington the National Guard. Or, so that sword was a presentation sword from his soldiers, the ones that he had served with for, for 10 years, 15 years, and they gave it to him as, as he became the, the Adjutant General the first time. The sword itself is, again, the 1903-1905 Officer Sabre, However, it is um, intricately designed. It has a lot of really fancy work on the blade and on the the case and on the hilt. The whole thing is just a really elaborate piece. And so to have such an intricately designed sword that is named to the general and his first tour as the adjutant general is really a significant piece to the collection of the museum. And we were, you know, we did everything we could to, to make sure we acquired it because we were, we knew that had that gone off to some other collection that we would never get to see that. We would never get to be able to display that and tell that story to everybody about Washington National Guard's history. Thank you. And for your diligently searching for Maurice Thompson's name on uh, eBay sites and stuff like that. Thank that you. Was, that was very, yes. <laughs> very fruitful. <laughs> I'm sure there's like years and years where you got nothing and then finally. There's years and years of nothing. Yes. So what, what? 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 How'd you feel? What? Like what went through your mind as soon as it? I, as soon as you got a hit. <laughs> well, the the tunic was one thing, um, and I knew when I talked to the gentleman that sold the tunic, I knew the person that he bought it from, and so I knew kind of the, the history that it came from. But seeing those swords, that's just. I mean, I, I, that was just amazing. I got goosebumps just looking at it, and I still kind of do when I get the, I tell the story, just being able to, to get all that information out of that. And then there's other stuff that's still related to the estate. The gentleman that I bought the swords from told me that whoever was the executor of the estate told this company to come in, and they had three days to empty the house. And anything that didn't get taken out of the house was going in the dumpster. Wow. And so we don't know what stuff got lost. We have no idea what other things could have been in there that is sitting in the bottom of a landfill in Hawaii right now. Right. That's unfortunate. So we do, there are things that this gentleman has told me that he has, and that we're still trying to work through in order to get those and trying to add them to tell the story some more, add them to the collection. And so hopefully as we go through this, we'll be able to get some more things and add it into, into the display. If you guys want to see these these very beautiful uh, sabers that belong to Maurice Thompson, they will be in Building 2, uh, the museum that's on Camp Murray. So um, as far as I know, they're still open every Wednesday? We're open Monday through Friday, oh, you guys 9 to Monday 3 o'clock. Friday, yeah. Awesome. 
Uh, you can come in um, on Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday. It's a self-guided tour. On Wednesday, there's docents there, and we'll be happy to, to oh, do an entire tour and tell you as many stories as you want to listen to. I'll definitely come on nice. Wednesday because the knowledge is is helpful. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah there's there's so many years of uh, institutional knowledge in these 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 gentlemen and ladies that work there and volunteer at the museum. There's lots of history there. Um, Peter, thank you very much thank for uh, for telling your story. <laughs> Well, that's our show. That's our first inaugural episode of the uh, this podcast, which is still going to be taking shape as it as it goes along. Um, I want you guys to share it with your uh, soldiers and airmen that are in your formations next to you, left and right of you. Uh, share it. Um, they're going to get a lot of good discussion and inside look into the military department and what we're all about and you might get we'll, we'll talk to some people who have some great great information some great benefits for you that that you guys need to know and need to know that is available to you um, and how you can get access to those benefits so and and services too especially with the you know joint service support they got a lot a lot of great programs over there that you guys have access to that you may not know that you have so uh, share this with your friends please uh, share this with family if they don't know anything about what you do this is a great way for them to find out find us on social media talk to us send us dms tweet at us just you know, look for the Wa National Guard on all the, the main uh, social media platforms. Share share your stories with us too. Oh yeah, share yep. and yeah, send them send them our way. You'll uh, just look in the show notes and it'll have the information on where you can send uh, questions to. If you have questions, send them to us and we might answer them on the on the podcast. This See. is a, this is a new thing and we're gonna we're gonna have fun. Can't See wait. you next time, kind of thing. Yeah, <laughs> thanks.